the first thing that we can all do is expose ourselves to as much opportunity to learn about nature decline and, and climate change as possible. The more we learn, the more that we realize that change really needs to happen. That will then just flow through into all of your decision-making framework. And as a result, you will start to embed those behaviors personally into the way that you make choices on a day-to-day -day basis. If you've ever been surprised by your own thoughts, well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. I'm really happy to be in Australia, I must say. It's been really nice to come from the United States to Australia and have some work time, but also some enjoyable pleasure time. I don't know what to call this podcast interview because it feels like it's going to be a pleasure. I'm really happy to have Will, and I'm going to ask him to pronounce his own name. Excellent. Fantastic to meet you, Charlie. Yeah, my name's Will Raywood-Smith. And Will is a really interesting mathematician who works at Deloitte, and he's going to tell us hopefully quite a lot about himself and his journey. I'd really appreciate it if you would just start with your story. And I'm purposely asking this in an open-ended way, as most psychologists might. So I, you have to decide where you want to start and where you want to end. I suppose I'll start with the loving household and family that I grew up in. And it was very much an academic household. My, my father and my mother were both in academia, um, computer science and biochemistry. So there's a lot of emphasis on um, academics at home. And for me, it was mathematics was sort of, I suppose, the calling that I had as a child. And I suppose I was one of those children, if I didn't get 100% in a maths exam, I'd be a little bit disappointed. <laughs> and that naturally led me towards studying maths at Cambridge and had, had a lot of fun and enjoyed very much studying it. But actually, as I came towards the end of my undergraduate in maths, I found myself seeing a lot of my friends and classmates heading in other directions and sort of not quite sure whether those directions were for me. Uh, so I saw people going into being actuaries or management consulting. And that was the point at which I sort of started to evaluate other ways and think through actually how can I have an impact in, in my life. And I saw on a, on a sign, just a notice board in the, the maths uh, lecture hall, a sign for energy masterclass, a three-day masterclass to learn all about energy and climate. So I thought, okay, let's, let's go along there and I'll, maybe I'll learn something and, and that might help me in sort of determining where I head next. And that was the moment very much that the sort of numbers and the science around climate really, really clicked for me. And that was a sort of hook into the sector. And I've, I found myself passionately working on it every day since then. So I decided to do a PhD in clean energy, stayed, stayed at Cambridge to do that. 
And in each of the different summers of my PhD, I used that window to try and look at climate from a different angle. So I spent one summer with Bloomberg NEF. Uh, so that was with Michael Liebreich looking at the clean energy investment landscape. So I did the first onshore wind experience curve there. So looking at the cost reductions in onshore wind, then spent another summer working in a team within the Department of Energy and Climate Change. So this is with Sir David McKay. So as the chief scientific advisor, wrote an incredible book called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, which is just a, a book of sort of back of the envelope calculations about how can you have the biggest impact on climate. So how, how can we prioritize as that effort? As a efforts? society, as a government, or as an individual? Both. All of those yeah, things. Yeah, all of those things. So yeah, fun. I'm going to ask you about that in terms of individuals down the road. Yeah. And then I, I sort of finished my PhD a little bit early and had a window of time where I saw an organization that really inspired me. It was doing um, what's called Pago Solar in Sub-Saharan Africa. So this is uh, households who are currently using kerosene or candles or even torches or burning grass for lighting in, in their homes. This Pago Solar company would come in and install a small little solar panel on the roof and a, a 3000 milliamp hour battery with two LED lights at zero upfront cost, but you'd pay for it by going to your local market and buying a scratch card and scratch off the panel and type in the code and the system would be unlocked for the next week. Amazing. And, and the cost of that scratch card was less than what you'd have been paying previously on kerosene or, or candles. I have so a was, question about the roofs. This may sound strange to ask, but isn't it often the case that the, the roof would not sustain the panel, I, I wonder what kind of roof you were dealing with. These, these were typically sort of yeah wooden roofs with um, straw or um, sticks. And because the panel is actually very small, it, it's really the size of you know roughly an A4 piece of paper. Oh, so very, very small panel, but sufficient to provide lighting and mobile phone charging. And that then was transformational in the lives of those individuals. So I, I wrote to that company and said that um, I've got some time. Uh, you don't need to pay me anything. Just send me into the field and you can, uh, I'm very happily take your prototype units. And so I, I found myself in Kenya, Uganda and South Sudan with sort of two suitcases full of prototype units. And it was amazing. And now that company you know, has installed, you know, more than 100,000 systems. The whole Pago solar sector has grown hugely. And I think that for me was was quite a important sort of moment where I could see the impact of clean energy and clean technology and how that was enabling people to be able to live a, a better life. We did surveys with the the people who were using those systems and they were able to spend more time as a family. Their kids were able to study in the evenings. The parents could plan their business. It was really quite incredible. What about the health impacts of the kind of things they were using for light before? I would imagine that they could have had some pretty negative health impacts. Certainly, with their indoor sort of air quality, but also the, the risk of fires within the homes, very high. So the statistics around that are certainly worth having a look at. So I, I then had an opportunity... Uh, to join a research and development team within the engineering construction company here in Australia as the clean technology lead. So my my partner and I, we moved to Australia and yeah, joined that team. And I think because my mind was very much in this sort of solar, for, you know, from the work that I'd been doing in sub-Saharan Africa, when I went out to a re remote 
site here in Australia and I could see how it was powered with trucks and trucks of diesel coming in. It really sort of sent alarm bells ringing in my head. And I thought there must be a better way to power these remote communities, remote mines. And that's where I had the idea for Sunshift. And so Sunshift is, is really all about replacing diesel generators with solar so, and making solar as redeployable as, as a diesel generator. So you can move it around from one site to the next. So I was fortunate to receive some funding from the Australian government to develop the technology. We manufactured it locally in Australia and we deployed the first system at a construction worker village in, in a state called Queensland. And then we went on to do the first solar at a off-grid mine site in Australia that's powered by gas. So we deployed a three megawatt system at a, a mine called the South 32 Callington mine. And I suppose what's interesting about that is, you, you know, initially I was thinking, oh, mining, you know, I think of mining as quite a dirty activity. But actually, when you think about the clean energy transition, we really need a lot of minerals and metals in order to achieve the transition. So that mine, as an example, produces roughly about 7% of the world's silver. The solar PV sector needs about 9% of the world's silver. So I like to think that, you know, by taking solar to that mine, we were actually sort of bringing some of the silver from the mine back in the form of solar panels to power the mine. Then I sort of went on to deliver a couple of hundred megawatts of, of solar, found myself sort of traveling quite a lot, but um, had my first child. And that's where I was sort of thinking, well, how can I actually now amplify my, my impact? And that's where I started thinking through, well, how can I have an impact at a sort of an economy scale or a sector scale? And that's where I joined Deloitte. And so that was roughly four years ago. And it's been uh, an awesome four years, have taken a lot of pride in the work that our team has delivered. And as, an, as a simple example, you know, we recently worked with the alumina refining sector here in Australia. So that's a sector that is responsible for 13 million tonnes of CO2 every year. And we've worked with the three alumina refiners to say, how do we decarbonize this sector? What's the decarbonization roadmap? We published that together with the, the three refiners to take that sector now down towards net zero. And if I think about the work that I was doing at Sunshift, you know, the systems we were deploying, they had an impact, but maybe that was sort of 10,000 or 100,000 tons of CO2. And now I think the platform that we have at Deloitte to work across the ecosystem to, is actually to drive sort of bigger scale impacts. And that's why I'm here and what, what, a, what we do every day. And um, yeah, really fortunate to work with a, a fantastic team in that space. Will, that's an impressive story. Uh, I must say I'm a bit awed by your ability to develop an impactful life um, at such a young age. It took me a lot longer and probably not nearly as much impact as you're having today. How do you see individual people just going about their life the best way they can have an impact on the climate? Um, what is what is your thinking? Because people think, oh, should I buy an electric car if I can afford it? Should I do this or that? And a lot of us are just completely in the dark about what to do. Or should I give to a nonprofit like the ones that are recommended by The Life You Can Save? Is that a good thing to do? For me, the first thing that we can all do is expose ourselves to as much sort of opportunities to learn about nature decline and, and climate change as possible. Because I think the more actually that we, we learn, 
the more that we realize that change really needs to happen. So I, f- I fundamentally sort of think that learning is the, f- is the start because that will then just flow through into all of your decision-making framework. And as a result, naturally, you will start to embed those behaviors personally into the way that you make choices on a day-to-day basis. And what are those behaviors? Because here I am struggling as an individual to decide what behaviors I need to do in order to impact the climate, knowing I'm just one individual and that the problem, at least from my point of view, is maybe nuclear weapons, but those two are the number one and two problems in the world in a sea of problems. So what do I do as an individual? So I think some of the sort of quick areas that you can focus on. So in particular, you know, we understand the impacts of a meat heavy diet. So actually moving more towards a plant rich diet has huge benefits from all different aspects of climate and nature. That's a really good place to start. And one that actually has a lot of other benefits as well in terms of your own health. And there's a lot of good evidence out there around how eating more plants actually leads to a better well-being, better energy levels. And you can see that now even in the way that sports teams sort of moving away from after a a game, you know, having a couple of steaks and, you know, a little bit of carbs, now moving towards a much more plant-rich diet within sort of the sports world. I think there's other things you can do in terms of material goods. So I think all of us can think about do we really need some of the things that we may aspire to own or have? And rather than investing in ownership of those items, actually spend more time investing in the relationships that we have around us, you'll naturally, I think, get a lot happier by focusing in your efforts in that direction. And then also just thinking of yourself as a conduit for materials to sort of flow through you as opposed to accumulation of materials. And as a simple story, you know, even with my children, I've sort of got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. The other day I put a cardboard box in their playroom and I said, okay, it's time for us to do a bit of a clear out. And they loved it. They really enjoyed the process of deciding which things they didn't need anymore, which things they could, you know, create some more space. They could then pass it on to some of their sort of younger friends. And that process has been really good. And I think that embeds within them a sense of material sharing, a sense of not wanting just to own things. So I think that those are a few things, but there's other elements that we can all do in, in our own house. You know, I've just gone through this exercise of moving our house to an efficient electric home. So that's involved essentially electrifying everything and getting rid of gas. So we've electrified uh, cooking, which has had benefits for from an indoor air quality perspective. We've got a, a good amount of solar on the roof. We've electrified our hot water heating. You know, the air source heat pump hot water systems are phenomenally effective. You know, I put in one kilowatt hour of electricity and I get about five kilowatt hours of heat. So our energy use has dropped dramatically. I'm actually now paid by our energy provider due to the what we're feeding into the grid. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do in our in our home environments. But I think it is tough sometimes to decide, you know, do we go and buy an electric car and 
where I actually did that exercise myself recently and, and sort of sat down and worked out the numbers. I'm really and, curious to see what you came up with. So I think in, in, in a lot of circumstances, yes, it, it's definitely the right thing to do. So, but I think from our perspective, we actually hardly ever use our car because we use public transport and you know, the mileage on it is, is, is tiny. So I could go and spend a lot of money on an electric car that will sit in our driveway and not be used or I could use that money in other means and have a greater impact. But I'm sure there are, you know, every family is different. There'll be families that require a car for their commute every day. If somebody or, does, let me, let me, hypothetically, like my wife and I require a car to get yeah. back and forth to see our children and take care of our grandchildren. And it's quite a long way. Some of it's on a ferry, but it inevitably, there is no other public transportation. So in that case, let's just say we drive 20,000 kilometers a year, what would you think? I would think in no doubt that moving to an electric car is a good option because mm -hmm. it will be particularly in the way that you procure your energy to charge the car is important. So in, in the Australian context, we still have an electricity grid that has a lot of coal. So if you were to just charge your car using that coal electricity, it's still actually better than the petrol car. But if you were to procure renewable energy, and use that to charge your electric car, that's even better. So I think electric cars, it's definitely the way that things are going. All passenger vehicles, I think, will be replaced by electric cars over the next sort of 10, 15 years. The phase out of the internal combustion engine is, is real. I, I don't like the fact that I own an internal combustion engine, but when I look at the way that I could deploy that funding elsewhere and have a greater impact on climate right now, and in the future, no doubt, as a, from our personal choices, you know, we may not live next to a school. So we're currently next to the school, so I can walk the kids to the school. I can catch a bus into work. So we don't use a car. But in the future, when we use the car more, we'll then get an electric car. Any other simple behaviors? So I imagine you're suggesting if people can afford it to put solar as much as possible, a lot of people look at that as, well, it takes seven years to pay it back or what the return on the investment is, particularly for people for whose money is tight. What's your recommendation about personal behaviors relative to solar power? Certainly solar does require a fairly chunky upfront investment and not everyone is able to afford that. And there are various options where you can have solar put on your roof, but you don't pay it upfront. You actually pay it over time, so it's a reduction in your energy bill. So you can reduce your ongoing costs, have solar on the roof, and not have to fork out the money up front. So it's worth having a look at some of those options. I think there's actually a whole lot, lot of things that you can do for only about a hundred bucks. And so th simple things within our team, we encourage people when they're working from home, and if it's in, in the middle of winter and people are cold, we actually encourage and sort of mention there's a simple heated blanket you can have and, and use that to heat yourself rather than heat the room. And people have seen a big reduction in their energy bills. So that there's a, there's a simple thing that can be done here. Well, I'm curious, during the winter, when it's July or, or August, what do you set your home thermostat at? What temperature? Or what? I know you have a lot of solar and it's probably electric heat pump. So but in, I'm just curious what temperature you suggest people should set their their heat during the winter so during the winter so we very rarely use uh heating actually and that's partly because we've really insulated the house i see and we also adopt an approach of if you're feeling cold 
pop on an extra layer. So, you, you know, if you were to come to our house in the middle of winter, you may see us all wearing big, thick, knitted sort of jumpers, but that, that keeps us all warm. But if it, if it does drop pretty cold, then we'll probably set it at about 18 degrees centigrade just to raise the temperature of the house a little but really actually through us being in the house and cooking in the house, there's enough sort of sources of heat It's insulated sufficiently. And also in Sydney, we are quite fortunate to have a moderate winter. What is the, I don't even know, what's the temperature here in July or August or the coldest month? So the coldest month would drop well, maybe down to around about 10 degrees, I maybe a little bit cooler than that. Uh -huh. So nothing too cold. Not everyone yeah. gets to live in a climate <laughs> like that. I think the opportunity for all of us, because the, the, climate issue is so pervasive in work environments as well to have influence. So I sort of strongly encourage people to, to ha have a look at that. And then I think I sort of touched on my kids already, but I think it, so embedding it into the next generation is really important. So a game that we play is sort of I spy the electric car, you know, try and you try and see the car, which doesn't have an exhaust pipe or I spy the solar panel. And increasingly now it's like I spy the heat pump. Mm -hmm. So and I think heat pumps are going to be as pervasive as, as solar panels. And that's quite an exciting technology to see get deployed now. Moving away from climate, as I maybe probably from your point of view, I would guess the biggest problem that the world is facing. Is it, from your point of view, the biggest problem that the world is facing in a sea of problems? There's certainly a sea of problems. And I think what's probably true about climate and, and nature decline is the way that it exacerbates lots of other problems. You know, you'll have heard this term sort of threat multiplier. And I think that's very true about, about climate. And I think the dual benefits of if we can address certain elements of climate, then actually we're also able to address certain health benefits, uh, energy access benefits, equality benefits. So there's there's a lot of synergies there, yeah. and I kind of see climate as a as a good lever to unlock a lot of side benefits. But it is certainly, in my mind, a very critical one that requires a huge amount of global collaboration to address. And we're very fortunate; in a lot of the technologies are there, and they just need to now be deployed at scale. One thing that I would challenge that you said earlier is that education, the value of people knowing um, what is going on and what the risks are, the generational risks, the multi-generational risks, it seems implied in what you said is that if people know what's right, they'll do what's right, which is kind of platonic, but I don't necessarily agree. And I think there's abundant evidence to show that people can have a lot of knowledge about what's right and they don't do it. So is there anything other than education that you see as a way of getting people to change their behaviors? I think I, I do agree with what you're saying. I think that yeah, education is, is part of it. I think it's interesting if I reflect on my own experiences, I've certainly found that learning these things fundamentally changes the way that I enjoy certain items. So for you know, I think through say, for example, a steak now in the past, maybe sort of 20 years ago, I would have sat down and very much enjoyed a steak. But now I I see that steak and I, I know it's an indulgence that the planet can't afford. So it fundamentally changes the way that I think about that steak. Or if I know, say, for example, if a meal has been prepared and chickens have come from a factory environment, that will then 
very much affects my ability to enjoy that meal because I know that the life that that chicken has had has been a, a tough one. There's that deep sense, but I hear what you're saying in terms of education alone is not enough. I think that there are ways that we can influence each other and maybe uh, sort of excite each other about these new options. So one thing that when I was getting Sunshift off the ground, I was working within a bigger organization, which really wasn't doing anything in terms of renewable energy. But one thing I did was I knew the CEO really liked cars. So actually the day before I was doing my pitch to invest in Sunshift, I arranged for an electric car company to come with their electric car outside our office and take the CEO for an electric car test drive. And I sat in the back and I've almost like hearing these sort of childish noises come from the CEO, just the, the pleasure of driving an electric car, mm -hmm. the acceleration, you know, the instant torque, all of that. So that planted in his head this new idea and the new perspective on clean technology that actually it can be a fun thing. It doesn't just have to solve climate issues. So the next day when I turned up to pitch, oh, we should replace diesel generators with solar, it was a fairly easy Well, that was brilliant. Pitch. So I think that kind of ability to influence others is important and also recognize, you know, it's that dual benefit. So one thing I do is I catch the train when I go down to Melbourne to avoid the, the flight. It's an overnight train. Train is actually fun. It's more convenient. You get, you get on the train here at sort of 9 p.m. You arrive in Melbourne at around 7 a.m. And you don't have to worry about getting out to the airport or either end and you know, all of that additional logistics. In the morning, you know, if I was to fly, I'd sort of have a very bad night's sleep because I'd be thinking about my flights. So the benefit of catching a train is it's better uh, from a sort of managing my own time perspective and it's actually also cheaper. So I think it's, and then I've been sharing that with team members and now quite a few of the team catch the train. So we kind of influence each other. And I think even just before coming together now, we had our team coffee and we have this very simple rule, you know, bring a mug or be a mug. Um, so <laughs> no one has takeaway cups and we've made it very clear, you know, if you don't have a mug, you're not going to get a coffee. Well, that is a little bit of the stick approach as opposed to the carrot approach, which may play a role. Yeah. Greetings. We all know that climate change is a global crisis that demands our action, not just attention. I'm Katie Stanford, head of research at The Life You Can Save. While climate change affects all of us, it's the vulnerable and developing nations who suffer the most. We've created a Tackle Climate Change Fund to invest in nonprofits ensuring a cleaner future. Your support drives policy and structural change. We understand the urgency of this challenge and ask you to join with us in making a difference. Please visit thelifeyoucansave.org to contribute to the Tackle Climate Change Fund today. Let's create a more sustainable world together. How are you going to convince governments like the United States that they ought to play a more active role? Because um, my question now is pivoting to what is the role of government in changing uh, important behaviors at a at a structural level as well as changing individual behavior. Is it critical to have government on board or can all of this be done from the bottom up? I think it is critical and certainly to have the policy settings and the regulations steering things towards the right direction. And I think things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the US have been 
quite monumental in what the sort of investment flows have resulted off the back of that. I think what what's sort of important from a government perspective is to set directionally where things are going. So the sort of the dates the UK, for example, has come out with in terms of when it's going to phase out the installation of gas boilers or electric cars is, is critical. And I think it may also come back to those side benefits again in terms of, well, we know that globally it's unequivocal that climate is a result of human action, the climate change that we're seeing, and therefore we all need to move to net zero. So as economies think about, well, what role do we play in a net zero future? That structural change to industries and how do you position new industries and set the foundations for those industries today and the employment and the revenue and the export opportunities from those industries, I think is very important. So when you, when the US looks at the Inflation Reduction Act, I think it certainly looks at it from that perspective. There are all the, all the benefits associated with reducing emissions, but there's also all of the benefits associated with employment and growth within new industries. We as Deloitte have played quite a critical role, I'd say, in terms of quantifying the benefits of climate action versus inaction. So a couple of years ago in Australia, in the lead up to COP26, we came out with a report that said, hey, if we don't act on climate, our GDP is going to drop and employment's going to suffer. But actually, if here's this alternative scenario where we act on climate, GDP's greater, employment's greater. So it's being able to, I think, articulate those benefits of action. And I think then as a result of that, and, and lots of other things that happened within Australia, we came out with a net zero commitment in the lead up to COP26. And then I think it's about government really thinking through, well, how does it have the best policy settings to accelerate the energy transition, build foundations for new industries. And there's certainly, yeah, there's, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, both government and bottom up. Do most Australians accept the premise that we have to move towards net zero? Because it doesn't feel that way to me in the United States. So our millennial survey that we do certainly demonstrates globally that that generation climate is their number one issue. That's really important for us to, to recognize. In Australia, there is overwhelming support for net zero, but that, that's not the case probably five years ago. So when we um, see bodies like the Business Council of Australia come out and say, yeah, we are behind a net zero view for Australian businesses, I think that, that really changes the landscape there's certainly a lot more to be done, but I think the sort of consensus here in Australia is certainly that you know net zero is a pathway that we're all behind, and we've got a lot of work to achieve it. You know, we've got a, in Australia, you know, we've got a lot of wind and solar to deploy as we retire the coal plants that are still on the grid. You're quite an optimist, and I think it may have something to do with your age, as versus mine, and also that you live in Australia and I live in the United States, where Donald Trump is threatening to become president again and that there's tremendous support for him and there's almost no opposition to him within the Republican Party. And the Democrats are running an 80-year-old that people question his mental competence uh, in spite of some of his achievements. So I think we, we differ on our degree of being optimistic. I think there are a lot of people that are more pessimistic. 
But taking an optimistic approach seems much more likely to achieve the kind of results we need to achieve because pessimism isn't going to lead us anywhere, although it's probably my inclination at this point. When I listen to all of what's going on, I think that I'm personally much more pessimistic, but I don't think it's a very winning strategy uh, to be pessimistic. So I admire your, your optimism and your generation being more optimistic, I think is a really great thing. I certainly have had periods in my life of quite deep sort of climate doom and and you know depressive periods where actually I feel quite paralyzed mm-hmm. to act an example was I was fortunate to to be part of a group going to Antarctica as part of a 50 students globally selected who are passionate about acting on climate and they shipped us off to Antarctica to spend some time on a boat together and and on the snow. And it was just an incredible experience. But coming off that, I was in a state of almost sort of shell shock when I came home. I couldn't really talk with people about it. It felt this experience of being in an environment that humans had hardly touched at all and just knowing the magnitude of the impact that we were having on the world, it weighed so greatly on me that I just wasn't able to think. I wasn't able to act. I've sort of come out of those cycles very much with a view of to make the progress that we need, we've got to accelerate action as quickly as possible and the opportunities are ripe. So if we you know, look out of the window of the offices that we're in today and I think opportunities are abundant. You know, you can see so many things that need to be changed towards net zero, whether it's electrifying the ferries that are heading out of circular key just below us, or, you know, whether it's getting heat pumps rather than all of the gas heating that we can see, more solar on roofs, etc. And each of those is a sort of business opportunity, an employment opportunity, a community investment opportunity. I certainly see it as a big opportunity and one that we collectively uh, can deliver on, which I know is an, is an optimistic view. And I suppose I am quite a sort of stubborn optimist. I don't want to get you to a point where you would, I couldn't, but I don't want to get you to a point where you would be less optimistic. But let me turn to a little bit of a different subject. You are currently planning to do something in December that I think is very exciting and addresses different problems in the world, more consistent with some of the problems that The Life You Can Save is addressing. Can you tell us about how you decided to do what you're going to do, what you're going to do, how you chose to have the money that you raise go to these this certain cause fund that we call it at The Life You Can Save and what you think the impact of that is likely to be? So when I was... In my early 20s, and I suppose I was on a PhD stipend and couldn't afford going to a gym or anything, I started running and um, I found I actually really enjoyed it. And my friend and I at the time, we entered into a marathon in Prague and we did that run together. It must have been quite hilly, no? My first marathon was in Los Angeles. I have to say it wasn't hilly at all. And I really appreciated that. It was relatively flat. I think the thing that caught us off guard was the cobbled nature of some of the streets. So we weren't quite prepared. And unfortunately, my friend as well was wearing a cotton t-shirt for the marathon, which has disastrous impacts on sort of things rubbing. Um, But we came out of that and, you know, I had actually fundraised 
in in that first marathon. So I, I was thinking, how can I do something that will help motivate me to keep on going during this run? And one of the things I thought, well, if I if I fundraise maybe a couple of thousand dollars, then I'll, I'll at least be able to sort of know that I, every mile I run, I'm I'm raising a hundred dollars for something that's worthwhile. And then ever since I've been doing these runs to to fundraise and. Um, when actually that friend who I ran that first marathon with, he passed away, unfortunately, in a, a terrible accident in South America. And a couple of years ago, I, I ran in his memory uh, a, a trail run in the Blue Mountains. And yeah, we, we fundraised for the World um, Bicycle Relief Foundation, which was something that was very important to him. And the meaning of raising this money is is really important to me. And you know, the other thing that I raised for was a project. It's called uh, Project Bow, which is all about making a um, reliable energy supply for a baby hospital in Sierra Leone. And again, Project Bow is really impactful. So currently now. I've got the pleasure of, of running for the Transform Lives Fund. And actually, I came across the Transform Lives Fund on one of my long runs listening to a, a podcaster called Rich Roll, who had a podcast with Peter Singer. And I just couldn't couldn't believe it, really, in terms of what I was hearing from Peter. Had you not run across Peter before? I hadn't. No, that was the first time. So that, that this was probably just over a year ago. And then I listened on my on my subsequent runs. I listened to the audiobook. And it really, yeah, it was understanding. Will is referring to the audiobook of The Life You Can Save, Peter's book, and it's available on thelifeyoucansave.org backslash um, book, I believe. And it's an audiobook that's been read by celebrities. So um, go ahead. I just want to let mm, our yeah. listeners know that. It's a, and I, I so highly recommend it. I mean, so sharing it with, with team members and friends and the one of the stories that really sort of lodged in my mind was the Fistula Foundation mm -hmm. and the impact that the Fistula Foundation has. In particular, the when a woman has a fistula and what that can lead to, sort of being ostracised by a community, and the impact that this fairly simple surgical operation can have on that individual. And I remember sort of hearing, you know, the the ladies who come out of the the hospital in a new dress almost skipping down the path is, I think, the the way that the story was told. Just so the listeners know, these are obstetric fistulas that come from women who don't have a cesarean section. Maybe they're very young. They're not ready to have a child uh, through a vaginal delivery. And there's quite a large ripping that in the end product of which is that there's a leaking of feces and urine. And these women smell really bad and... Um, they're ostracized within their communities and these fistula repairs that are relatively easy to do and surgeons can be trained to do. Um, that's what Will is referring to because it completely restores this woman to her community. So the impact you can have by yeah, performing that, you know, paying some money towards the fistula foundation and the impact that can, the transformational impact that can have on someone is, is incredible. So I yeah decided to run. There's a 100 kilometer race in December called the Cozy 100. Although it's now 106 kilometers, they've cheekily added six kilometers. Those last six so, could be really challenging. Yeah. So I'm targeting at least ten thousand dollars, and my my partner and I we're personally matching the first five thousand. And 
I think we're we're currently at about six or seven thousand. I think so. I looked on today. I thought it was like sixty two hundred dollars, yeah. something like that. So I'm sort of pushing and 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 wanting to do more. And one of the things actually I've been sharing with people is the fantastic impact calculator on the Life You Can Save website, where you can look at the impact that your donations can have on the different charities that sit within the Transform Lives Fund. So there's six very carefully selected charities that are the recipients of of the funding through the Transform Lives Fund. And it's an absolute pleasure from my perspective to be able to spend time raising money in that manner. It's something that you know, I th- even yesterday, actually, a, a la- I was walking along the street and a lady in front of me fell over. She was 75 years old and she broke her arm. Um, so I helped, helped her up. I could see very quickly that her arm was broken. Oh, it was a compound fracture. Compound fracture. So I sort of we took her over to a chair. We called an ambulance, waited until the ambulance arrived. Her husband was able to get there in time as well. And I suppose what was what struck me about that was that it was – absolutely directly visible in front of me and it was so obvious what to do and i suppose it goes to sort of the peter singer's drowning child story when when something when you can see something it's easy to act but what's important for us to all do is to think and remind ourselves that these things are not always directly visible in front of us but there are things that we can do to act. And I think that's the fantastic work that The Life You Can Save is doing. And anything I can do to help support that and is a privilege. Well, I have some ideas which I won't necessarily talk about on the podcast right now, but I've been sitting here thinking about uh, things you can do for The Life You Can Save that could be transformational for us as an organization in helping people address climate change in addition to helping save lives, enable livelihoods, and reduce uh, suffering in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia through a lot of different types of interventions that don't have anything to do with climate change, like uh, fistula repairs or creating videos that help moms realize that you do give your kids water when they have diarrhea and you take them to the health center. And there's all kinds of wonderful interventions for the 25 uh, nonprofits that we support, but climate change is now Um, part of that. Let me turn my attention now to asking you a more abstract question, which is, what do you think it means to live a moral life? It's a question that I ask all of our guests. So I I think it's ultimately the, the choices that we make, and we can all aspire to make better choices. I like to think of actually something my my dad has always sort of instilled within me and I'm, I'm not a religious person. I'm not, not pro-religion or anti-religion. I think there are things that can be learned from all, all religions. But one thing that he had, you know, he's a strong Christian and he has in his head a sort of perspective on what heaven is and his perspective, which he sort of instilled in me and my brother is that it is essentially the, legacy that you have and leaving the world in a better place than it is without you. So thinking through how can you in your lifetime be acting in a manner that has as great a positive impact on the world as you can. And then heaven is essentially, you know, after you pass away, it's heaven is the legacy and the impact that you have on the planet and the people. And 
I quite like that way of thinking. And I think I sometimes think about, you know, uh, the wake of destruction and suffering that can result from being a, a human on planet Earth and, you know, the consumption that we have. But how can I act in a manner that minimizes that wake of destruction and suffering, but actually, you know, turns that into something very positive. So in my mind, I suppose it's just about continually striving to achieve that state of leaving the, the planet um, in, a, in a better place than it was without me. Well, that's beautifully said. I say it differently, but not as articulately frequently, but I agree with what you're saying. And I, I love your dad's view of heaven. And I think coming to terms with who I was and who I am has helped motivate me to volunteer and provide the funds early on for the life you can save. But I think it is a continuous struggle to make the right decisions. I recently finished an article called Why I Aspire to Be Effective Hedonist. And I try to unite the idea of doing good things with also pleasure, which you talked about a lot about at the beginning of this podcast interview. I have a question. When you talk to your friends, your community, but I don't mean your people at Deloitte who are on your team or Aaron who's sitting right next to you helping with the podcast today, but when you talk to a circle of friends or maybe one step removed from sort of, if you think of it as concentric circles, from your core group of friends, how do your ideas resonate with them? And do you feel that through education, you're able to mobilize a percentage of them or do you find it difficult? I purposefully... I suppose, expose myself to people who aren't just like me and have quite different views on the world. And, and, I, and I think it's so important to have a diverse friendship circle. And I feel fortunate to have that a variety of different backgrounds, world perspectives. But I think what is important with, with me in that setting is that I feel welcome and I feel supported in the choices that I'm making and I'm able to be completely myself with those individuals. So, you know, I've, I've got friends who are probably still in the bit of a view of sort of macho meat eating. You can't have a barbecue just full of vegetables. And I think when I rock up and I've got my halloumi and I've got my 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 peppers and sweet corn and things, they completely welcome that. But, and they'll, you know, I'm also happy to give them a bit of um, jibes around, you know, what's the impact of what you're eating on your sperm count and things like that. And we have a good laugh about it. So I think it's kind of being able to have conversations with those people who come at things from a different angle, but you can kind of, again, have a bit of fun with them about it. And then I think at the end of the day, they'll probably go away and think slightly differently, maybe. And one thing I've, I've had to do, I think, is not judge people on the way that they're acting because I find if I do that, then that affects my ability to connect with people. I'm not going to sit down next to someone who's eating a steak and judge them for it and feel bad, you know, look at that person in a worse light. But I'll very openly talk with them about, you know, have you thought about the impact of what you're doing? And and they'll they'll listen to me. And if they don't listen to me, then then I'm I'm happy to move on and find people who do. Um so hopefully that 
No, I think that that addresses the question in terms of what percentage of people change significant behaviors. I think you haven't necessarily said that because you don't know. And uh, the medium and long-term impact of people being exposed to your beliefs, which I think are infectious, at least I find them infectious, but I also know that people don't necessarily act. I've been spending the last 10 years talking about the 5.3 million children who die every year of largely preventable illnesses. And the good news, like in what you're talking about with some of these climate interventions, is we can do something about it, just like you did something about this woman with the broken arm, or just, as Peter says, people dive in and save that child who's right in front of them, even if it costs them $200 of clothing or being late uh, for an appointment. People don't experience that directly, and it becomes more difficult to get people to act, but I don't want to stop. And it sounds like you don't want to stop either. It's been a delight to have you on the podcast today. I do want to end with, is there anything I haven't asked you? Because I haven't really gone through everything we might've told you we would ask you, um, because your interest and your knowledge of climate activism, your ability to talk about some of the things that will really help, both from the individual health level all the way up into the world uh, level is, very compelling. But is there anything that I haven't asked you today that you would like to add? One sort of framework that I found sort of useful when I think about climate and the opportunities it presents is quite a simple framework. And it's about us all being aware and very simple four-step framework. But essentially, it's for all of us to be able to identify things. So, you know, we're all kind of looking around and thinking, okay, that that thing over there, that needs to change. Kind of like you're starting with your children in a yeah. positive way. Yeah, so I kind of think of that, you know, that sort of identify stage. And then I think it's about, you know, as a as a person taking ownership of that thing and thinking, well, that's actually something I don't like. And the, the whole sort of like um, hate something, change something mentality. Because I think then you can kind of start with the second step, which is sort of ask why really why. So why is that thing the way it is now? Why isn't it the way that it should be? Um, for example, you know, what, why is it that everyone else, everyone outside has internal combustion engines and they don't have EVs, for example? Or, and then I think it's about, or in the context, I suppose, back to Sunshift, it was like, why is the diesel generator here? Why is there all of these trucks coming in with diesel? Why is there not solar? And really then sort of unpacking and thinking through and asking people and spending time with people to work out why things are the way that they are. And actually realizing in the process that people want them to be the other way, but there's just certain things that are preventing it. So in the case of the diesel generator, diesel generator was cheap. Getting solar there was expensive. And also you couldn't redeploy the solar when the mine or the community moves to a different location. And then I think it's, yeah, this whole opportunity to play with possibilities. So start sort of thinking through, okay, what does a solution look like? How would I actually... Um, and I think this is kind of the fun bit. This is the creative part. What, who do I need to bring in to make this solution work? And then it's about the fourth step, responding and implementing. When I think of climate, that's, and maybe lots of different solutions, like different issues as well. Thinking about having that framework in mind, I find personally it's been quite useful to see that there's a lot of opportunities where we can... We can, that we can identify and then we can start asking why, really why, play with possibilities and respond. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for everything here today. And I look forward to following your work and having more conversations like this, not necessarily on a podcast, but really 
interesting and inspiring. And I don't always feel that way. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Charlie. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.